If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. Um, as we did last week, we maybe skip around just a bit. We began a short little series last week called Christmas Creations. If you weren't here, a Christmas creation is something that we make, that we create, to make Christmas a little more beautiful. Maybe it's an ornament that we would hang on our tree, or maybe a sign that we would put on the wall, or maybe some sort of thing that we would place on the mantle or on a table, just to bring delight to the eyes and a sense of wonder, if you will. We, we create things to make Christmas a bit more beautiful. And as I said last week, and we'll say again this week, I've been wondering though, does Christmas itself create some things within the hearts of those who believe? Christmas, of course, what is Christmas? It is the celebration that God has sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world for us and for our salvation. Does that magnificent truth of the eternal son of God becoming a man for us and for our salvation, does it create things in the hearts of those who believe? And of course, I argue that it does. Last week, we said that Christmas creates joy in the hearts of God's people. We'll say a little bit more about that this morning. We also said that it creates wonder in the hearts of God's people. If you'll remember, if you were here, I brought out some of the Christmas ornaments that hang on our tree. And I said, which of these is not like the other? Santa Claus, um, snowman, um, an ornament from Canada that Tara and I got on our anniversary, a little sled that I made when I was 10 years old, and then a manger scene. We said, which one of these is not like the other? The manger scene is not like the other. If we think about what Santa means or a snowman means or the Canada ornament means, it, they all have what they mean. But what does this one mean? It's completely different. We said it went back into the mind of the triune God and his plan for the ages and the incarnation of the Son of God for our salvation. It creates wonder. And we said also that Christmas creates generosity, that this great tradition of gift giving at Christmas time springs forth from the gospel. Certainly those magi, those wise men from the east who came and presented their gifts to Jesus of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But even bigger than that is this gift from God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And therefore, one of the great traditions of Christmas is generosity. If you're a child here today, maybe you're hoping that the gospel has really taken root in your parents' heart this Christmas season, that they will be very, very generous come tomorrow morning. Well, what else? Last week, we had three things. This morning, just two. Christmas, I think, creates within the hearts of those who believe expectation. When I was a kid, one of the greatest Christmas gifts I ever got was this toy called Domino Rally Mark II. Any of y'all remember that? No? Where were y'all? 
you know, little boys, they take their daddy's dominoes and they set them up and they knock them over and that's all cool. Well, somebody made a toy where it was hundreds of these little domino things. They were plastic and they were colors and you could set them up and it had these gizmos and they could go up the ladder and drop a marble and all that kind of stuff. It was just tons of fun. Setting up dominoes is really cool. And the great expectation is that when you push the first one, the rest will fall. Without denying at all, or even downplaying at all, all of the anticipatory nature of the Old Testament, of God and all of his promises and all of the prophecies of of the one who would come, the birth of Jesus Christ is the pushing of the first domino. And the rest are sure to fall. In Zechariah, or not in Zechariah, I keep, every time I think about Zechariah, I mess up. If you were here a couple weeks ago, you remember that? In Luke chapter 1, in verse 67, Zacharias is the father of John the Baptist. And an angel had appeared to him. He was old. His wife was old. They were barren, couldn't have children. But an angel appeared and said, you're going to have a son. And he will be the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. And Zacharias had some trouble believing it. And because of it, he was made mute for a while. But then, of course, God's promise came true and John the Baptist was born to Zacharias and to Elizabeth. And in chapter 1, verse 67, upon this and upon the reality of the Messiah who would come, Zacharias said, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He's speaking in, in, in a perfect, in a future perfect. He's speaking as if these things are already done because of the baby, the Messiah, that is to be born. He's visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking of his own son, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Simply the news that not only would his son John be the forerunner, but then the Messiah would come. Zacharias could anticipate, could expect what was to follow. He speaks of redemption. He speaks of salvation. He speaks of deliverance from their enemies. And he speaks of everlasting peace with God. 
Whenever we think about Christmas and whenever we might look upon our tree and see that manger scene or sing songs about the birth of Christ, remember that was just the first domino to fall. New Testament theology, I think, can be summed up in three words. Maybe more than this, but these are pretty good. Cradle, cross, crown. The cradle, where the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, in the womb of his virgin mother Mary, became one of us and was born They laid him in the manger, and there he was, and that's what we celebrate this season, that Christ has come, Emmanuel, God with us, the cradle. But that was just the pushing of the first domino. The second was to fall, the cross. That baby born in Bethlehem grew up to accomplish the work which his father had sent him to do. To live a holy life that we could not live and then to die upon the cross to pay the penalty for what we had done. The baby was born to die. To give his life a ransom for his people. The cradle. The cross. Two dominoes have already fallen. And now we await the third, the crown. When this one who came and who died and rose again and ascended to heaven and sat down at his father's right hand will one day come again in glory. This one, we might say, is cute and cuddly. It's hard to speak about Christmas that way. But the births of babies are. Just hold them. This one, horrifying and gruesome. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. That which is cute and cuddly. That which is gruesome and horrifying. That which is triumphant and victorious. The cradle, the cross, and the crown. We live as new covenant people in this time in between with great expectation of what is to come. And just as surely as he was born, and just as surely as he died and rose, he will just as surely come again to make all things right. I've been reading a little bit this week about an existential philosopher. Not even sure what that is. His name was Martin Heidegger. He put his his finger, though, on something that 
all philosophers must deal with and all people must deal with, that of death. The reality of death that casts a shadow over all of humanity. As much as we would like to keep it at bay, we cannot deny it. Eventually, it will have its way with our parents. It'll have its way with our siblings. It'll have its way with our friends. And somewhere in that mix, it will have its way with us. And you have to deal with it. To deal with it because we have hopes and we have dreams and we have expectations and yet we have this reality in front of us of death. And Heidegger pointed out, as the best that he could tell, we among all living creatures are the only ones that can anticipate the fact that we are going to die. We know that it's coming. And it can create in us a sense of angst. Or anxiety. Because we care. About our existence. But we know. That it's going to cease. We have hopes. We have dreams. We have longings. Of what could be. What might be. But we know it's all coming to an end. And it can shake us up. Then what of all of my striving? Then what of all of my labor? Then what of all of my money and all of my successes and all of my accomplishments if death will most assuredly come? And he uses a haunting phrase when he talks about it. Human existence. He calls it being toward death. He says that's the mood that humanity lives in. Being toward death. And he speaks of the angst and the anxiety that can come from it. Now, if you're a believer, what of that? There's a bright shining light into that darkness, isn't there? I'm not as smart as Heidegger, but I think I could have a good conversation with him. There has been light that has shined into that darkness. And it is the truth of the coming of the Son of God who died upon a cross and rose from the dead, who is to come again. And there is the hope of all who are united to him of resurrection as well and life forevermore with him. And so mankind, apart from Christ, may live in this mood of being until, uh, being, what a, Being to death. Toward death, thank you. Being toward death. But in Christ, where does the man or the woman, the child of God being in Christ, it's what? Being toward resurrection.
What might that mean for the lives that we live? What might it mean for our passions and our pursuits? What might that mean for the goals that we have for ourselves? What might it mean for the goals we have for our own children and how we raise them and hope and dream and pray for them? Being toward resurrection, Christmas, creates expectation. Zacharias heard, he immediately went to the redemption, to the salvation, to the expectation that the Messiah would defeat their enemies and they would rule or they would reign with him forevermore. When we see the manger, when we think about the cradle, it leads us to think of a cross. And I hope it leads you to think of a crown. You can't have the one without having the others. Praise God. Second, this morning, Christmas creates thankfulness. Thankfulness. This one might be simple, but I want to bring it home to us if I can, briefly. The angel appeared to Mary. He said, Mary, you're going to have a baby. Of course, she was betrothed to Joseph. They had not yet come together. She wasn't sure how this was going to go. And the angel said, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And sure enough, the Holy Spirit did, and Mary became pregnant. Well, Joseph learned that Mary was pregnant. And he was confused about all of this. He loved Mary and they were going to get married and yet now she's come up pregnant and you can imagine the thoughts that are going through his mind. And yet he was a righteous man. He, he wanted to, to be kind to her as they called this thing off. Say it like that. But an angel appeared to Joseph. Said, Joseph, no, 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 no. This baby is of the Holy Spirit. She's going to bear a son. You should, you're to call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the announcement to Joseph. He will save his people from their sins. Again, Zacharias, when he sang and, and gave his praise to the Lord, and you, child, John, my son, who will be the forerunner, you'll be called a prophet of the Most High, for you'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. So the angel announces to Joseph, call him Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. And Zacharias gives his praise, son, you'll go before this one, you'll prepare people by the forgiveness of their sins. And when the angel appeared to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy, for today in the city of David has been born to you a Savior. We might expand this just a little bit, and this is good for us to remember. Those of us who believe, we are thrilled, are we not, with the forgiveness of our sins. 
we are thrilled that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to us. Are we not? Because we don't have a righteousness in and of ourselves. We need an alien righteousness, somebody else to live a righteous life for us and then take the account of their life and give it to us. And that's exactly what happens in the gospel. And we get the, the promise of eternal life, heaven with God. But you know, those things are just means to an end. The forgiveness of our sins, the righteousness of Jesus imputed to our account, heaven. Those things God did for us to bring us to himself. Does that make sense? Our sins separated us from God. And the gift of Christmas and of Good Friday and of Easter is the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Jesus so that we can be reunited to God. John Piper wrote a book called God is the Gospel. God is the good news. Your sins through Christ have been forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to your account. You've been adopted into the family, but all of that is a means to reconciliation with God. God is the gospel. He's the good news. Peter would say it like this. Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring you to God. And so last week we spoke of joy. That Christmas creates joy, a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he opens our eyes to who Christ is and what he has done. And so when we contemplate Christ, the Son of God who's come for us and for our salvation, to live a life, to die upon a cross, the penalty for our sin, that we might be forgiven and justified and ultimately reconciled back to God, it produces in us joy. And that's good. I wanted to read you a bit of this book. Joy is the mood that best accords with being in Christ. The joy is not a feeling like happiness. Pastor theologians are not here to produce happy Christians, saints with smiley faces. Happiness is too shallow a term and fickle an emotion. Happiness is dependent on circumstances, and circumstances change. Often happiness is either inappropriate or inauthentic in our in-between times, marked by finitude and suffering. We, we live in the in-between times, between the coming of Christ and the coming of Christ. We live in the in-between. He said happiness Often happiness is either inappropriate or inauthentic in our in-between times marked by finitude and suffering. By way of contrast, resurrection joy is a mood, a way of being attuned to the world when, when, when one knows that the world includes an empty tomb. Happiness is a surface phenomenon, but for those who through faith enjoy being in Christ, joy resides in the depths of their being. Joy is never inappropriate. 
even in the depths of suffering. Because the resurrection reminds us that death, foe though it be, has been defeated along with its cohorts, meaninglessness and hopelessness. The psalmist declares, I will sing praises to my God while I have being. The great reversal has taken place. So that is a reminder of what we said last week, that, that this amazing truth of Christmas, God the Son becoming a man for us and for our salvation creates in us joy, a sustaining good feeling in the soul in light of who Christ is and what he has done. But that's still not thankfulness. Thankfulness is the heartfelt expression with words that communicates gratefulness. Later on in this gospel, you don't need to turn there, but in Luke 17, if you've been around, you've heard me share this story before. But just listen, this one can weigh down on you. While Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They were ten lepers. They had to stand at a distance because you couldn't, get, you couldn't touch a leper. You had to stay away. And so these men knew it, and they're from a distance. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to Jesus. And he was a Samaritan. Implication, probably the nine others were Jews. And yet he was a Samaritan. He was part Assyrian, part Jew. And there had been 700 years of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. And 10 lepers are healed, and one of them turns back to say thanks. And it happens to be a hated Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Were there not 10 cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? He said to him, stand up and go, your faith has made you well. Now, let's just imagine just for a bit, as the ten are going, they all probably realize that they've been cleansed. And I'm surmising they all felt a sense of joy. Wow. I'm clean. It probably brought a smile to their face. They might have even, woo-hoo-hoo! But only one turned back to express thankfulness. Last week we talked about Christmas creating generosity in the great tradition of gift giving. Now, what do we do at Christmas time whenever we give gifts to our children? And they open up that gift and they're so excited about it. Maybe they get a little 
something down in their belly, you know, and they smile and they, yay! And then they quickly move on to the next one to tear it open, right? And what do we say to them? Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Macy, Molly, Matt, hold on, sugar. Turn to Nana and say thank you. Same thing at birthday parties, right? They're just ripping. Whoa, 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 hold on, Molly, hold on, sugar. Look at him and say thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know. Joy. Oh, what God has done for his people through Jesus Christ. Oh, what he has done for you and me. He's forgiven us of all of our sins. He's imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. He's adopted us into his family. He's given us the hope of eternal life. He's reconciled us to God. Oh, what reasons for joy. Hey, Mitch, hold on. Turn and say thank you. Maybe one super practical thing you might leave with here today is just a reminder to say thank you to God. Thank you to God. Thankfulness is a good thing because in the midst of the gift, we start thinking about, oh, yeah, 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 I got it, I got it, I got it. Thankfulness forces us to look outside of ourself to the giver and to show gratitude. Gratitude, the word comes from grace. God was gracious to us. We didn't deserve his love. We didn't earn our salvation. He graciously provided it to us through his son, Jesus. And so, gratitude. Thank you. He said, well, yeah, Mitch, I did that 20 years ago when I got saved. How about you and I say thank you every time we sin? How about that? How about every time you fall into sin, you go, thank you for Jesus. Thank you. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I'm a sinner. But oh God, you sent Jesus for me. Thank you. Thank you. May it be so of you and me that we would be a people of joy and of wonder, of generosity, of expectation, and of thankfulness. I want to close with this. Why do you and I put out Christmas creations? We want to make things look pretty. We put up ornaments to adorn our tree. We put up garland and lights to adorn the staircase. We put up nutcrackers and 
little homes to adorn the mantle, to make it look attractive, to make it look pretty. I wonder why God makes his Christmas creations. Joy and wonder, generosity, expectation, thankfulness in the hearts of his people. I wonder if it's not to hang you in your home, to place you in the mantle of your neighborhood, to set you in the workplace as one to make things a little more beautiful. In Titus chapter 2, Paul instructs Titus to teach the men, the women in his church to live godly lives. The older men, the older women, the, old, the younger women, the younger men, even the slaves. So that, so that you will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Adorn. Make it look pretty. I wonder if you and I aren't God's ornaments, his Christmas creations that he wants to hang and place and set in the places where you and I live, work, and play to let our light shine in such a way that others may look and say, wow, and give glory to God who's in heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you made good on your promise to send your son. You made good on your promise that he would lay down his life for his people. Will you not also make good on your promise? that he will come again. Help us to live in, a, in an exciting expectation. The kind that will pull us forward into love and pull us forward into hope and pull us forward into holiness. Pull us forward into mission because of the great expectation that we have. And oh God, might you fill us with thankfulness. We can't help but be filled with joy when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to what Christ has done for us. But Lord, help us in the midst of our joy to turn to the giver of these amazing gifts and say thank you. close Colossians let the word of Christ richly dwell with you within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God 
Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Oh Lord, make us a thankful people this Christmas. We'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen.